0: You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19.
1: Tonight, we're joined by Jean-William Pop, Bill Popp. He is the founder and director of Geskio in Haiti and professor at the Weill Cornell Medical College. Bill, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. My partner in this podcast series, Andrew Schwartz, unfortunately cannot join us today, but sends his regrets and his best to you, Bill. Thank you, Bill Pop. I want to say a few words about what he's done in the, over the course of his career as the founder and director of Geskio, based in Port-au-Prince in Haiti, he's been. The pioneer of AIDS and TB care, comprehensive care in the urban slums, research on prevention and therapy for people in resource poor settings, focus on humanitarian response, including water and sanitation. He's been a long term partner with the Fogarty International Center at the National Institutes of Health. Bill, I served on the board of Fogarty until very recently and are close with Roger Glass. President Moise. Appointed Bill co chair of the COVID 19 Response Commission April 29th. He serves in that role along with Lorette Andrienne, the Director General of the Ministry of Public Health. I just want to say, Bill, you have many, many friends here in the United States who speak so highly of you. Stuart Simonson at WHO, Marcus Espinal at PAHO, Roger Glass at Fogarty. Tony Fauci and NIH. I've spoken or been in contact with each of them in the last two days. This is Tony Fauci about you, Bill. Bill is a true hero. He has led medical efforts in Haiti on HIV AIDS, the earthquake, hurricanes, cholera, and now COVID-19. He is truly an amazing guy and a friend. So I just thought I wanted to make that point that you reach out and talk to people here who've worked with you and the response is quite overwhelming. So you've taken on this major role. You've used some stark language in talking about this. You've been on the job now in this role for about five weeks. You've talked about how Haiti in the COVID-19 era, in the era of this coronavirus pandemic, faces a perfect storm. You've said the monster is coming our way. So tell us, I mean, if we're not successful at putting in place the right sort of instruments, and we'll get to that in a moment. Is Haiti on a path to a massive coronavirus outbreak and a humanitarian emergency and economic stress?
0: Thank you very much. Uh, indeed, we are facing a perfect storm. First, politically, we are a divided country. And at a time when we should be united, the country is going to all kind of political turmoil. We have elections and uh, Whereas the virus doesn't discriminate among political parties, we have that situation that's going to aggravate the response. The second issue that we have that's probably more important, it's economic. Because of the COVID pandemic, Haitian remittance from the diaspora represent normally one-third of the country's GDP they have decreased by at least 30%. And as a result of not entering dollars, we've also had a situation where our local currency has been devaluated 30% compared to the US dollar. This was also aggravated by the fact that our export from factories also have slowed down tremendously because first, they were stopped because the government thought that it was a way to contain the epidemic early on because factories assemble a lot of people sitting close together. But most recently as they reopen, they've reopened at one third of the capacity. So if you want the two major source of dollars, have decreased a lot. This will lead us very clearly to food insecurity situation. In normal times, 40% of Haitians live in situation of food insecurity, meaning they don't have a good meal every day. Now this is likely to increase to 60% or more. On top of that, we have the security situation where we have gangs controlling major slums. How are we going to enter those slums? to provide preventive messages against COVID. It's going to be difficult because they are no man's land. Now, on June 1st, we started the hurricane season. And that's going to aggravate the situation because Haiti is among the six countries in the world that has the most fragile environment. So it rains and then you have people losing their houses people losing their lives etc cetera, etc cetera. and then if you're going to create shelters how are you going to do that because you cannot put people close to one another with the covid situation so if you put those five issues together you have an explosion with the covid and the covid is complicated also because we have to fight it alone completely alone why because normally at any given time, I have 10 to 12 wild Cornell staff working with us. They are not there. They had to be back home. But most importantly, in terms of resources, we have to do it all alone. I can tell you up to this day, the resources that we have used are those of the Haitian government and those of the Haitian private sector. So, Nothing else. Now we have a lot of promises from a lot of agencies, but they may come too late. If they come in six weeks, it will be too late. So this is why I say we are facing a perfect storm. Can I ask you a couple of questions
1: on that? We've read a lot about the return home from the Dominican Republic of Haitians who have lost their jobs in the the economic stresses, dislocations in DR caused by this and that that is also a threat of returning home with with people who are carrying the virus. There's also the factor of distrust and stigma and misinformation within the larger population. And on the money side, it seems that the Global Fund, the World Bank, the IMF, the IDB, some of the donors, including US, are putting dollars forward. Is that not true? I mean, I know you've said you need for your plan and we'll get to your plan in a moment, the plan you're working on, you need 30, $35 million a month in order to really be able to support those designated health facilities that you're assembling public and private to sort of make the response. But don't we see some donors leaning forward? So those are a couple of different questions. The migration return, the stigma and misinformation and also the, the financing that may be coming from this amalgam of different donors, World Bank, IMF, IDB, the U.S. government, Global Fund.
0: Okay, I'll start with the migration pattern. Yes. You know, the Dominican Republic is facing the worst epidemic in the region. We have a lot of Haitians working in the Dominican Republic. They've lost their jobs. So they are coming back in Haiti And to date, the International Office of Migration have documented 27,000 that have returned. Now, if only 10% of them are returning infected, it's already close to 3,000 people who are spreading the disease all over. In fact, the situation was very well controlled when the airports were closed because all the new cases in Haiti were linked to people coming from the outside, either from Europe or the US. As soon as they closed the airports, the situation was very, very, very well controlled. And you could see that the numbers would be increasing perhaps by five every week. Now we have 300 per day. Yes. That's the situation we have. And it's essentially occurring since we've had people coming back from the Dominican Republic. Now, you could say, you could close the borders. Well, first of all, you cannot prevent Haitians from returning home. That's the first thing. It's their country, they want to come back. You cannot stop them. But let's say you were to put them in quarantine. We have no capability to put 30,000 people in quarantine. Secondly, there are only four control passages between the two countries, whereas there are 267 different routes where people can get in. Mm -hmm. So the numbers I'm giving you are the number of people who have been counted. But there may be many more who have crossed in different ways. So it would be totally impossible. Now, the government has tried to test people coming back, but they refused testing. So what are you going to do? Are you going to arrest them? And then let's say they get tested and you want to put them in quarantine. The hotels in the area, which are very few, do not want to host them. Right. And that goes back to the stigma issue that you mentioned. We've had a lot, a lot of stigma. And it's coming from a number of reasons because you have some religious people who say that covid is an invention that was created by the government to make money. Others say that it's a disease affecting the rich countries, it's not going to affect us. Others say that we rely on Jesus Christ and uh, we have nothing to worry about. In fact, today, one of those preachers, unfortunately, died. Uh, One of those people were saying that, you know, you didn't need to take any precaution. I heard, unfortunately, that, that he passed away today. So how do we circumvent this? This was very important because you could not set up a COVID center in any area. It would be burned. It would be destroyed by the population. So what we did is what we know how to do. And we've done it for AIDS. We've done it for TB. We work a lot with communities. So we would go in a community where we want to set up a COVID center. We ask for the leaders, we meet with them. We ask them to provide us with people who can read and write and people who have a phone. And I'll tell you why we require the phone. And then we treat them as community health agents. First, to sensitize the population about the disease, but mostly to bring us patients that they feel have the signs and symptoms. Who may be reluctant to come forward. Exactly, and once we take care of them, it changed completely the situation. Mm -hmm. Now, why do we need a phone? Because those people are so poor, they cannot wait at the end of the month to get paid. You have to pay them weekly. So we use a gadget on the phone with a phone company called Digicel, and then we pay the company, would forward the money to them straight on their phone. So uh, we do it on a weekly basis, and it has worked wonders. Uh, This way we've been able to open, in fact, we opened a new center uh, yesterday, a large center. We're going to open another one next week. And uh, this helps a lot with the stigma It helped with cholera when we had cholera. It helped Mm with uh, AIDS. Mm -hmm. So essentially, it's getting the population involved to demystify the disease, essentially. Now, you mentioned about the foreign aid. Yes. The International Monetary Fund indicated that they had $114 million for COVID. In fact, they were in discussion with the government for many months, 10 or 12 months before. And COVID didn't exist at that time. They mentioned COVID because of the COVID situation. They released the phone earlier to the government, but it's something that goes essentially to stabilize the local currency
1: Mm
0: -hmm. and to help the government pay their staff, etc. This has nothing to do with COVID. I see. Now with IDB, we've had very good contact with them, very nice people. We've met with them. They are trying to accelerate their response. But acceleration with, for them is six weeks. Mm-hmm. And six weeks for us may be too late. Now the World Bank uh, indicated that they have uh, funds that they will be releasing, but those funds will go to UN agencies. But fortunately, uh, we have a very good and close relationship with UN agencies. We know them, we work with them, and they also have the same motivation we have is to get the epidemic under control.
1: So this would include WHO, PAHO, UNICEF, UNDP, World Food
0: Programme. Exactly. We have a weekly meeting with them and we set up with them a common room. And they were very active in the preparation of the plan. We have a very well-defined plan that really covers all aspects, but... It stresses two essential parts. One is a communication plan and a plan for behavioral change. Yes. This is a plan that will deal with every single Haitians, regardless of your social category, regardless of where you live. It covers the entire country. And this was a beautiful plan prepared by seven women experts in communication They were from all political angles, pro-government, against government, neutral, but they were experts and they did a beautiful job. Now, why is this plan so important? It is important because the government doesn't have the repressive means to force, for instance, we have a curfew every night at 8 p.m. They cannot enforce that, they cannot, force people to wear masks. So when you have this kind of situation, the only way is to convince people. Now, I think that Haitians people, because we've worked, essentially with poor people since I came back to Haiti. They are smart people. All you need to do is take them into consideration. Don't baby them. Talk honestly to them. Mm -hmm. If you talk to them, you'll be surprised to see how well they understand. All they need to do is to trust you. And empower them. Exactly. And once you do, you change the Mm ballgame. So unfortunately, that plan, it's a plan of about $3.5 million. The private sector, from the funds they gave us, we initiated that plan. But I understand that the World Bank gave funds to UNICEF and we will be meeting with them shortly to see how we could activate that plan. So essentially, the way it works for us is that ever receive funds. We don't need to receive funds because uh, our job is not to handle money. Our job to, is to oversee the response, make sure that it is comprehensive and that all funds that goes through Haiti really go inside that plan. So if ever want to give money to whoever, as long as it fits inside that plan, we are fine with it. But if it doesn't fit the plan, we don't consider it as part of the response. So that's that's the vision we have. And we also, the good part of being part of that commission is that we're able to get the help of many very well-qualified people from the private sector. And uh, some of them are retired people who wanted to volunteer and they will help us track the performance of whoever received the funds, because it's not just a matter of receiving funds, it's how well I perform with what I receive. Yes. So that's the plan for us, and for the private Asian sector, who's been very generous, including the Asian diaspora, I've told them that I can guarantee two things. One is that perhaps for the first time, you'll be able to follow every single dollar to see where it went. The funds that Mm -hmm. we will manage And secondly, we'll do everything we we can to save as many lives with the limited resources that we have. Now, that gets me into the second part of the plan, which is to set up treatment centers, large ones, nationwide. Why large? Because of the logistics. We are going to have to send to the countryside oxygen tanks. Those are very heavy. Those are 100 pounds tanks. They'll have to go by truck. So imagine that you were to deliver those in every little unit that has five beds. So that would be a nightmare. Whereas what we have is that we plan to have sites that will have a minimum of 40 beds and a maximum of 1,000 beds. So are you designating, are you reaching
1: partnerships with both private and public hospital and other health facilities across the country who agree they commit to join with you, they'll get some subsidies and some support in terms of supply chain of key things in order to create the beds and ensure that the beds are there. Is that how it's working? Uh,
0: Yes, in some ways now, because earlier we met with the people from the private sector and they were a bit reluctant to be involved. They said, well will pick up the overflow. I said, well, you will get COVID patients whether you want it or not, you better yeah. be prepared. Yeah. And, the, and they noticed that they had admitted people who turned out to be COVID patients. And then they had to close wards, send staff home. Right. So for the past three weeks, we started training them at our center, at Gisio Center. And now many of them have opened wards, and we'll be helping them. So they're less frightened by all of this. That's correct. And uh, I must say that people were afraid, and we want to demystify the disease to show that if you go to a center early, because as you know, COVID is a silent killer. And uh, our goal is to make sure that particularly people who have respiratory issues, no matter how mild they are, that number one, they monitor it with an oximeter, yeah. And they send us that information. And anybody who is below 93, we'd like them to be in a hospital. Yeah. So essentially, our treatment is simple. It's oxygen. And number two, it's anticoagulants. Mm-hmm. Now, for oxygen in the countryside, there is nobody that produces oxygen. In the large port area, there are two manufacturers of oxygen. So it's not an issue. So, what we had to do essentially is buy oxygen generators. So, we have some that have entered the country already. They will be going to the countryside. So, we have ordered 20 total. So, that will cover the countryside. So, they will have enough oxygen for their patients.
1: Tell me, um, you know, the testing has been very limited in Haiti. You're averaging under 500 tests per million. And when you look at the DR, it's. 8,000 per million, Salvador, 14,000. So you've got to expand the testing and move it outside of Port au Prince. I would think that's sort of a lead element. We've had this same problem here in the United States of expanding testing in a quick way. And it's related to the sense of how much threat and reality does this pose to people. Do you feel like Haitians understand what may lie ahead in terms of this? Pandemic, uh, there's been some modeling I know that you've done that have some pretty scary numbers in them in terms of what may be realized in the August time frame—a couple of hundred thousand cases. Do people understand the threat because testing's been so limited? You've been cut off for a while. It didn't look like there was going to be a serious outbreak,
0: but now that's all changed. Let me go back to testing. We have two laboratories the National Laboratory, and the Rodolphe Merieux-Gueschio Lab that work in tandem. And uh, as soon as I started the commission, I said that Gueschio will become part of the Ministry of Health. Mm -hmm. And our staff has worked really amazingly. They've done the training, they've done testing, they've done every single part of the intervention, with the Ministry of Health. Mm-hmm. So we, we've worked beautifully, uh, but it's the Ministry of Health that will provide the results. Because, you know, we think that our job is to strengthen the ministry, not to make it weaker. Mm-hmm. So uh, we do the tests and we shared everything. And I must say that at a time when we had a huge shortage, we imported tests from South Korea that we share. We imported receptacles because, as you know, people only think about the kit test. But in order to perform the test, you need to have the receptacle so that you can collect the specimen and transport it. And this is sold separately. If you don't have it, you cannot do the test. You need the kit test, and you need also the amplification materials. All three are sold differently and sometimes by different manufacturers. So the dean at Cornell helped us a lot. When they were having their worst epidemic and they had stopped all research lab assemble all the amplification material that they could find in research lab and send it to us. And we shared that with the national lab and that kept us afloat. Well, that's great. So if we could get feed test, because we have the platform for feeds in 41 sites nationwide in Haiti. We use this for TB. So we're able to have a rapid TB diagnosis within an hour in Haiti. Now the problem for us is that we have this platform but we cannot get the tests because they are not exported outside the US. Yes. If they were exported we could immediately diagnose COVID-19 everywhere we in Haiti. Yeah. So what we've done essentially is have people in all the departments there so that they could collect materials that are sent back to Port-au-Prince. So it's not the ideal situation by far, but that's what we, we've had to deal with. Now, in Port France and the Greater West Department, the disease has grown 25 times in the last three weeks. It has grown so much that 95% of people with COVID signs and symptoms test positive. So right now, I don't test people anymore We have the clinical definition of COVID. If I have a patient and I follow presently over 60 patients at home, they have their oximeter, they send it to us on a regular basis, but many of them, I don't want them to go to our centers and wait for two hours to get a test. That will get them too tired. Uh, At this point, I prefer them to rest comfortably at home I know this is what they have and we can provide the care for them at home. In fact, we have prepared a guide for home care that indicates when you should be going to a hospital, et cetera, et cetera. So this is our situation with testing. It's not the same for the countryside where the disease has not yet fully expanded, but I expect that within the next few weeks, we'll have the same situation. So we're monitoring what's happening in the countryside to know where to activate the fastest COVID treatment centers.
1: Thank you. May I ask you a question? I mean, there's been a lot of debate and controversy here in the United States when President Trump announced that the United States would be ending its funding of the WHO and ending its membership within the WHO. What's the impact been on Haiti? Uh, Funding through PAHO
0: is affected. What has this meant for you? Well, at present, we don't see the impact. It's too early. But PAHO has been a close ally of the Haitian government, has been a good advisor to the Ministry of Health. And we have a lot of good friends at PAHO. In fact, we meet regularly with the head of PAHO and they are part of our common center. Uh, I think it would be affecting a lot people in the region if they don't have this kind of technical support from PAHO. All right. Let's try
1: and bring this to a close by asking you, is this the toughest challenge you've faced? You've you've faced down a lot of tough challenges, cholera, hurricanes, HIV, AIDS, and on and on. Is this the toughest?
0: Yes. I think by far it is the toughest, but we are resilient people. And uh, I remember when we we were facing AIDS for a long time, there was no treatment. It was very tough. Right to see 80% of your patients die. Now, thanks to President Bush and PEPFAR, what have we seen in Haiti? For two decades, it used to be the number one cause of mortality. Now it's the number seventh cause of mortality. It accounts for 5% of all deaths. It's been surpassed by cardiovascular disease that we are tackling right now, which is the number one cause of mortality. Cholera used to be a big issue people said that cholera would be in Haiti uh, like it is in Asia and Africa, it would become chronic. Well, we don't have one single case of cholera. The last case was uh, in 2019, February 2019. Yeah. So I think that we'll handle that as well. And for me, infantile diarrhea was a big problem. But uh, by introducing oral rehydration and all the work that has been done with the Ministry of Health, It has decreased the mortality, infantal mortality, by two thirds. So we have good reasons to be optimistic. We have conquered many difficult diseases before. I think we'll get over this one as well.
1: Now you mentioned at the outset that deeply divided country politically at the moment. You're in an electoral season. There's a lot of controversy surrounding this. You've chosen in the midst of that to take on this this role. That requires a certain amount of steel, a certain amount of determination. Are you coming under any criticism from the different political parties? Because what we've seen here in the United States, we're very deeply divided. And of course, people like Tony Fauci, uh, Deborah Burks, others who they, they've drawn a lot of fire for the, for the courage they've shown in trying to
0: guide the response. What's been your experience? Well, I've been on the fire as well, not necessarily from the political parties, because I've worked uh, with uh, President Aristide uh, when we had AIDS. Uh, he's in the opposition, and his wife at the time was the best ambassador for AIDS for Haiti. I worked with President Prival when uh, we had the cholera epidemic. Uh, so I don't see myself as somebody who is with a party. Yes. My, po- my party is the health of the Haitian people. Yes. That's the way I see that. I am not with the party in place, but I'm happy to have a president and a government who's willing to do the work because I see in many countries, it's not the case. Yes. So at least I don't have to fight with that as well. Yes. It makes my work easier. I understand. Well,
1: you've been through all of these different crises. You've, you're very well known. You're iconic personality in this public health and biomedical response field taking on this really complicated and very difficult and very dangerous and fast-moving set of challenges. What do you feel when you step back for a moment? What do you feel gives you the greatest hope and the greatest strength to keep doing this
0: and believe that uh, you will achieve some results? Well, let me tell you, it's been my pure joy to work with the young people at the Ministry of Health. In 40 years, I've never found so many talented people. And people work very hard with a very small salary. They work 12 hours, but they are not recognized. And it's such a pleasure to work with them. So that part makes me confident that if we can change the parameters in Haiti, because at present, I think honestly, that even if Jesus Christ with all his 12 disciples are in charge of Haiti's government with the mechanism we have, he would fail. So we need to change that. And it would be good for all the future presidents to have something that they can work with. It's too heavy. Uh, because during a period of emergency, you have to go through all that screening. It makes no sense. I think that it can be done properly, cleanly, but in a better way. And uh, I honestly feel that we need to change the way people do politics. People who do politics should be people who are deeply in love with the country. People who have something to bring to the country. I'm obviously not, involved in that. I I don't want to be part of that because I already have my mission cut for me, which is health. But uh, I think others should come in and bring their contribution. There are a lot of smart, honest people that I think could make this country move forward. In addition, we need to bring the diaspora back. Haiti has 85% of college graduates outside the country. No country can be successful when your intelligentsia is outside. We need to bring them in. They are people of great value, people who love their country, and who can contribute a lot. I think that if we can create that synergism where people, even those who retired, would like to come back, we give them a way to contribute. I don't see any other way for the country than bring them back. And I think it will bring them a lot of satisfaction, and it will be hope to the new generation.
1: Bill, thank you so much for spending time with us this evening. What you've said is very inspiring. Um, Your leadership and commitment over the decades and in this instance today, it's so impressive and so inspiring and the vision that you bring to this. And we wish you all the best. I hope that we can circle back at a later point in the midst of this crisis and engage with you on sort of where we are a little farther downstream. But we wish you the best. And I think certainly our listeners will have great interest in hearing what you've said this evening. So thank you. Thank you very much.